0: Hello and welcome to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. I'm Peter Weinart, a non-resident fellow with the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today we will be discussing the state of security coordination between Israel and the Palestinian Authority. I'm very lucky to be joined by two expert guests who have researched and written on this topic extensively. First, we have Gaith Alomari, a senior fellow in the Washington Institute's Irving-Levy Family Program on the U.S.-Israel strategic relationship and the former executive director of American Task Force on Palestine. I'm also joined by Neri Zilber, a journalist and analyst on Middle East politics and culture and an adjunct fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. In 2018, Gaithan Neri co-authored a report entitled State with no Army, Army with no State, Evolution of the Palestinian Authority Security Services, 1994 to 2018. Thank you both very much for for spending a little time with us. Thank you, Peter, my Uh, pleasure. Um, so Gaith, let's, let's start with you. Um, uh, there was news recently that the um, Palestinian Authority uh, President uh, Mahmoud Abbas said that he was going to end security cooperation with Israel. Um, I wonder if we can just start by you talking a little about what exactly he did say and how much significance we should attribute to
1: it. Right. Uh, first of all, I mean, what he said was actually not only on security cooperation, but what he said that in response to Israeli plans for annexation and for the formation of an Israeli government that has annexation as part of its uh, platform, he says the Palestinian Authority is no longer bound by its agreements with Israel. So he's not really uh, focused only on security coordination, but focused on all kinds of uh, obligations, legal obligations that the Palestinian Authority has based on the uh, Oslo agreements, because his belief is that annexation would annul the very foundation. Of the uh, Oslo process now this is not new. I mean the Palestinian different Palestinian uh, leadership bodies the, within the PLO within Fatah have already said that they want to end these relations with Israel because they feel that Israel has broken its part of the uh, deal what 's new is that this time it seems to be more serious um, i don 't think we' are seeing a complete severing of relations we're seeing a downgrading of relations. So there is continues to be some communication, but at a different level, at a different pace. Uh, and I think but ultimately what we're seeing, what Abbas is trying to send is a message. If we go ahead with annexation, this is almost like a taste of things to come.
2: Neri, uh, anything you want to yeah. add? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll just jump off from what uh, Ghaith said. I think that's absolutely true. And I think his exact words were that uh, the Palestinian Authority, the PLO were released from their obligations vis-a-vis all the prior agreements that they had signed with Israel. Uh, he didn't say that all of them were voided or that the peace agreements were were over. Um, and I think that's a that's an important distinction. Uh, and as Raith mentioned, I think the the message is, is the crucial point here. Uh, the political and strategic context within which Abbas and the Palestinian leadership are taking decisions is precisely the threat, the looming threat, the future threat of annexation. And so this is a message not only to Israel, but uh, the wider international community, uh, the European Union, uh, the wider Arab world, uh, definitely Washington, that while uh, Abbas and Ramallah don't quite want to uh, take all these steps and sever ties, uh, they feel that they might not have any choice uh, in the coming weeks or months uh, precisely due to, uh, due to annexation.
0: Right. So as you, as you both said, this is bigger than, than security cooperation itself. But um, since that's what we're focusing on in this conversation rather than the kind of broader political dynamic, um, um, I wonder if you might, Ray, just um, talk a little bit about what security cooperation has actually looked like on the ground uh, in the West Bank um, between the Palestinian Authority and Israel in recent years? How does it actually function?
1: And of course, I mean, it evolved um, over time. And I think uh, what we see today is a product of a process that started towards the end of the uh, Second Intifada. I think President Abbas and at that time, Prime Minister Fayyad understood that that, uh, violence is not uh, good for the Palestinians on multiple levels. So we started uh, seeing security coordination begin at that point uh, with uh, tremendous American support, by the way, and Jordanian support. And it's taken many forms, uh, ranging from, uh, you know, exchange of intelligence about uh, terror, um, uh, coordination when it comes to Israeli operations in uh, Area A, coordination when it comes to the movement of Palestinian security forces between cities uh, when things uh, heat up. And this is very significant for these times when things heat up, the Palestinian Authority forces would uh, act as a buffer between demonstrators and Israeli uh, forces to uh, ensure there's no uh, friction, uh, make sure that any demonstrations take place within Palestinian towns, not at friction points. So there was a whole myriad of, uh, of uh, things that fell under the rubric of security coordination.
0: Um, and, Neri, from, from the Israeli perspective, how successful has security cooperation been? Uh,
2: well, extremely successful. Uh, if you look at just the security environment, the stability on the ground in the West Bank over the past, say, 10, 11, 12 years since uh, as Leith mentioned, coming out of the the really dark period of the Second Intifada, uh, it's almost night and day different in terms of uh, the situation on the ground, the relationship between uh, the PA security forces and the Israeli army and the various intelligence arms. Uh, so it's it's quite successful. Uh, you know, during the course of the study that we put together, uh, we interviewed uh, several dozen, I would say, former and current. Uh, Israeli security officials, uh, both in the army and the intelligence services, and everyone to a T said the same thing, which is that this relationship uh, not only is functioning really well, uh, but it's uh, highly important uh, precisely to maintain stability. And, uh, you know, just one anecdote uh, during the course of the research, I was on um, patrol with, a, with an IDF uh, battalion commander outside of Bethlehem and we were going around. It was a foggy, uh, cold in January morning, and, uh, and I asked him about the relationship with the PA security forces, and he told me that, that he does believe that there is someone on the other side that he can, that he can trust, that he can rely on. Uh, and this is, this is new, and this is different, uh, very much different from the Second Intifada, even, I would argue, very different from the situation in the 1990s, where you saw uh, sporadic upticks in, in violence, even including Uh, PA Security Force personnel uh, opening fire on on Israeli uh, soldiers, and we've had nothing like that uh, in recent years. Uh, Peter, if I may just
1: uh, kind of just emphasize uh, this point. I think, you know, the the concrete deliverables are very clear, and the metrics are out there, um, but what's deeper is what Nir mentioned. (laughs) The fact that coming out from a period of extreme lack of trust, with the security cooperation now, we're seeing um, constituencies, key constituencies, that's the security establishments on both sides, feeling there's a sense of partnership on the other side, which has actually created the space for a lot of, you know, maybe low key but significant developments on the ground that would not have been possible before that.
0: Um, but just to continue, I mean, this is not, though, a relationship of equals, though, right? I mean, if, if in, in reality, if, the, um, if Israel Wants the PA to do something? Um, does the PA, the PA, do the PA security forces have the capacity to say no? I mean, ultimately, I mean, the critique of this whole relationship is that essentially the PA is a kind of subcontractor of the occupation. Um, um, what, 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 what would you, what would you say to that?
1: Yeah. I would actually very strongly disagree with this, uh, with this sentiment. I mean, I feel that, uh, and I think uh, definitely that Chief of Security in the Palestinian Authority, as well as I believe President Abbas himself, uh, think of this as a Palestinian national interest on many levels. One level was actually maintaining law and order. I mean, as someone who lived through the Second Intifada um, in uh, Ramallah and uh, Jerusalem, I knew the kind of security void and the chaos that was there. And the Palestinians were paying the price. You know, someone would be, quote, unquote, a freedom fighter by night. But by day, they would be uh, gangsters who, frankly, would extort and would do these kind of things. So the reimposition of law and order was, I think, key key for the Palestinians and key for the, uh, you know, regaining some legitimacy for the Palestinian Authority. Secondly, I think, and this is specific to President Abbas, I think he's a very strong believer that violence and terrorism not only are uh, fundamentally and ethically wrong, but also are not helpful for the Palestinian uh, cause. And I think, in a sense, his view was that security coordination feeds into this uh, larger Palestinian national goal. But this is all framed in the sense, and this, is, by the way, was part of the doctrine of training the security forces, that all of the security coordination, some of which might be distasteful to some of the Palestinians, but ultimately this is all in service of our objective. The objective being uh, end of occupation and the creation of Palestinian state. And the biggest concern that we have today uh, as analysts uh, is if there is no hope, that there's a two-state solution, and this is one of the main results of annexation, then the very foundation, the very legitimacy of security coordination would completely erode.
0: Mm-hmm. But, Mary I mean, I, I guess, again, the devil's advocate argument might be that, that- the bet that Abbas um, and at that time Fayyad made about security cooperation has turned out to be wrong. You know, the idea was that you do good security cooperation, you reassure Israelis, you reduce terrorism, you show that Palestinians can be trusted with their own state, and Israel moves in that direction. Hasn't Israel moved in exactly the opposite direction? You know, quickening pace of settlement growth, Netanyahu being re-elected and re-elected and re-elected now on the cusp of annexation. So I understand that Palestinians might benefit from more law and order. As a political project, how can one, you know, as a goal towards statehood, how can one say the security cooperation has succeeded
2: for Palestinians? So I think therein lies the rub. Uh, I think the tragedy of of the current moment is precisely as you laid out, that despite, uh, I would say, a decade of... Of real progress on the ground, uh, this hasn't translated into political progress, uh, vis-a-vis any kind of uh, negotiated settlement or or real peace process, and that's that's a tragedy. And we can you know we can get into the reasons why uh, there hasn't been any progress, uh, but but I would say that's that's one of the motivations we had in in putting together our report, to explain uh, to the public at large, uh, to policymakers in Washington and beyond. Uh, that, hey, there is actually, uh, despite the rhetoric you hear from certain circles, a real Palestinian partner on the other side, uh, imperfect as it may be, uh, but it does exist. Um, it does work uh, day and night with its Israeli counterparts to, to fight terror, uh, to uphold stability, uh, and to, to maintain a certain level of, of security threshold, so to speak. Um, so as to allow, ideally, the politicians to build on that. Um, you know, the basic wager, even going back to the Oslo period in the 90s, was really, uh, you know, security for for land. <laughs> the Palestinians and, and under Arafat would, would come in. They would uh, take care of, of any uh, terrorist issues. Uh, they could fight terrorism perhaps more effectively than the Israelis. Uh, and in return, uh, Israel would... Would uh, you know gradually remove the occupation and allow a pathway to uh, to self determination and statehood? Um, and so I would say that perhaps one side of the bargain has has been met uh, in recent years, uh, but not the other side. Um, and really, this is this is the the strategic problem Abbas finds himself in right now. That uh, despite uh, you know playing ball uh, in recent years, at least on the ground in terms of security and and the shift he, ha- he has made, uh, especially relative to what it was like under Arafat, uh, that this hasn't translated into gains for his wider political program.
0: RAY Another question I wanted to ask was um, one of the critiques, obviously, that among Palestinians, but you also hear this kind of critique from Israelis and diaspora Jews is that, um, uh, that, that, this, that Abbas has created an authoritarian regime in the West Bank. Um, and um, the and and so I wonder what is the relationship between this security cooperation and the security forces that have been built up in the West Bank and um, the uh, and an um, authoritarian rule um, in in, in, the, in the West Bank. Is it is it wrong to see essentially the U.S. and Israel having essentially kind of built up a kind of a a kind of authoritarian uh, heavy-handed you know kind of secure you
1: know kind of security state uh, in the in the west bank um, i mean there is absolutely no doubt that the palestinian authority under abbas has become extremely authoritarian uh, by the way super, i mean ironically in ways that it was not under Arafat, who himself was not a great democrat uh, but uh, abbas has definitely created a much more authoritarian uh, traditional if you wish uh, you know, the kind of failed Arab states that we saw in Tunisia and uh, and elsewhere. Now, I don't know if there is actually causality between uh, the security forces and, uh, that we have today and the uh, repression. I mean, uh, under Arafat, uh, while again, things were not as bad, you know, the rudimentary security forces he had were sufficient to uh, do the kind of repression that was needed. I think uh, in a sense, you know, you don't need highly trained, highly uh, um, strong, you know, counterterrorism forces to be able to apply um, repression. Um, what I see now is an overall uh, trend of authoritarianism. Um, this is only one component. Um, there are other components, legislative, uh, judicial, uh, etc. And I believe you know, whether or not we've had uh, retrained Palestinian security forces, this is where Abbas's sentiment uh, was going. And to my mind, one of the biggest mistakes that uh, the U.S. and the international community, I wouldn't just blame the U.S. on this, has done is while focusing on the training and focusing on the deliverables to the Palestinian Authority, uh, has not uh, had a much more robust uh, demand for more transparency, more uh, um, human rights uh, issues, and I think there was almost an artificial separation between technical training and overall political push for uh, transparency, good governance, and things of the sort. And I think part of the tra- the crisis we have now and the legitimacy deficit that the PA has is exactly that. We were too uh, fixated on quick deliverables without focusing on the need to push for a much more representative, responsive governance.
0: Ritha, I want to just stick with you before I go back to Neri. So, well, one of the reasons, presumably, that um, authoritarianism has been able to flourish under Abbas is that there have not been elections, right? And, and one of the reasons there hasn't been elections is that when there were parliamentary elections in 2006 and Hamas won those parliamentary elections, the United States and Israel pushed quite hard for Abbas to disregard them and rule, and basically f- rule without parliamentary consent. Um, I guess to go back to my question, Is is, is An actual free election creates another risk that Hamas wins, gains some share in power. And yet, as I understand it, security cooperation is partly built on repressing Hamas activism on the ground. So is it possible to have Palestinian democracy in which Hamas runs and potentially wins elections and yet also maintains security cooperation?
2: Right.
1: First of all, the issue of repression goes both ways. I mean, in the same way that the PA represses Hamas in the West Bank, Hamas security forces repress uh, Fatah activists in Gaza. This goes both ways. But what you, what you actually pointed out uh, is really the, the kind of core um, conundrum that the Palestinian political system is facing uh, right now. I mean, elections are good and elections are necessary, but you cannot have elections when you have such a fundamental disagreement on the very foundation of what the body politic is uh, among the Palestinians. Security coordination is one component of this. There is obviously the opposition between the PA and Hamas, but there are many other actually components to this uh, division that will not be resolved by uh, elections one state, two states, resistance, uh, diplomacy, theocracy, secularism, all of these kind of fundamental questions are unaddressed in the Palestinian uh, system. The security part is one part of the component, but I believe if you really wanna have democracy and if you really wanna have Palestinian unity, these issues need to be uh, addressed and discussed, and at least have a sense of consensus of what is the Palestinian national direction, ethos, and fundamental rules of the game. No one is trying that, and that's one of the reasons why I'm actually very skeptical that elections will happen, and if they do happen, they will be in any way meaningful. The division is much deeper than one that can be resolved simply by elections. Yeah, I'll just... please, yeah. go ahead.
2: Yeah, I'll just add that, um, you know, what, what you had in 2006, really, and, and in retrospect, it was a mistake was to hold these parliamentary elections uh, and to allow Hamas to run, uh, and this was done due to due to real pressure from the then Bush administration. Uh, they viewed uh, democracy promotion in the Middle East as as a silver bullet, uh, so to speak. This panacea to all the other ills, uh, both in you know in the Palestinian body politic and in the wider the wider Arab world, and that's uh, I think. Uh, inarguably been proven incorrect, and, and Hamas, uh, due to real divisions within Fatah, and due to real anger amongst Palestinians of, of Fatah uh, corruption and mismanagement, uh, Hamas won the elections. And so what you have, that's, by the way, set the stage for uh, for the geographic division, not only the political division um, of of the Palestinian uh, Palestinian body politic between Gaza and the West Bank and between Fatah and Hamas. And so I think uh, You know, we saw earlier this year a, a kind of push by certain European partners to to move the the Palestinians towards elections and what I said at the time uh, Earlier this year, which which seems like a lifetime ago was that uh, I don't think it's it's the right time to do that It's arguably the worst time to do that uh, for a variety of political reasons and that you're setting you're setting up uh, the you know, Fatah and the PA uh, for another loss. And so if you were to go down the, the route of, of elections and democracy promotion, which, which you should, uh, you have to do it, I think, a bit, more, a bit more wisely than it was done in the past. And by the way, I think, I mean, sorry. Uh, Go ahead, Ray. I mean, what, what Niri described is
1: exactly the way that Egypt, which has been uh, managing the whole reconciliation process, approaching it, you know, look at it from the holistic approach, whether you're talking about the national agenda, the PLO, the PA itself, and security coordination and security forces become actually part of this larger uh, whole. Without that holistic approach, I fear that uh, elections would just be, uh, you know, would further the division and not actually resolve it.
0: But again, I feel like I'm playing a lot of devil's advocate here, but but let me continue to do that. I mean, fundamentally, isn't there something fundamentally, for lack of a better word, colonial, about the notion that Israel and the United States should get to decide when the Palestinians have elections and who they can vote for because they vote for a party that Israel and the US don't like? I mean, Israelis vote for parties that oppose two-state solution, and certainly from the Palestinian perspective, commit a lot of violence against Palestinians. We say, well, that's democracy, you know, Um, uh, and that, and that if you want a legitimate government and you want a a non-corrupt government, you have to let people kick the other guys out, and maybe they choose even worse people. But that's the way the process plays itself out, even though people sometimes make bad decisions. So again, this this notion that kind of we have to wait till the Palestinians are ready for democracy, or the Palestinians are going to vote that. For the people that the, that the folks in in in, uh, in Tel Aviv in Washington want, I mean, I, again, I just wanted to I just wanted mm-hmm. to articulate mm-hmm. that alternative perspective, which I hear from Palestinians a lot, and let you let either of you respond to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you, it's definitely a conundrum. It's definitely uh, there is contradiction there, but also there is a certain uh, logic. I mean, first of all, I'm a strong believer, and if I have not made, that this, have not made this clear, let me uh, repeat it that I, I think it's wrong for an outside party to come and say, okay, now this is time for you to do elections. I mean, ele- democracy is more than just elections. Democracy is about institutions, processes, uh, etc. I mean, we're not going to go into that. that. So I, I think it's a mistake for outsiders, whether it was the U.S. Uh, uh, in the beginning of the century or the Europeans more recently. I think it's a mistake to do that when uh, things are not ready. But in terms of respecting the results of the elections, but, I mean, I actually think that the U.S., and not only the U.S., frankly, uh, the Europe and the Arab world have their own legitimate interests and their own legitimate uh, rules. At the end of the day, uh, Palestinians or others are free to vote who are they're going to vote for. But there has to be clarity that a decision comes with a consequence. And at the end of the day, Hamas is designated as a terror organization in Europe and in the United States. And the Palestinians have the right to vote for it. But at the same time, the international community has the right to uphold its own very standards. So I think for the Palestinians, it is an act that they did that uh, they legitimately did. But they can't expect to take any act that they want, and then expect the rest of the world to bend its own uh, values and its own uh, laws and regulations. So I think uh, it, it's, it's something that both sides have to be sensitive of the kind of constraints and interests and fundamental values of the other side.
0: Nery, did you want to jump in on this?
2: Yeah, I'll just add very briefly that. Uh, you know, after the, the debacle of 2006, and it was a debacle, the parliamentary elections that were held then, um, they, they put uh, three conditions to Hamas, which uh, won a parliamentary majority and, and had uh, control of the Palestinian Authority government, uh, not the presidency, but the government. And they put uh, three conditions to them, the so-called quartet conditions, um, recognition of past agreements uh, with Israel, uh, no to violence, and what was the third one, eighth? Recognizing Israel's right to exist. Right, uh, recognizing Israel's right to exist. And those three conditions, um, to my mind, are, are fairly reasonable. Uh, and there are conditions, by the way, that the PLO and, and, uh, and Fatah uh, have recognized, um, very clearly just materializing with you know, very clear issues like security coordination. Um, and so if you, if you uh, do accept Hamas, uh, again, into, into some kind of election, I think uh, it's beholden on them to actually give something in return.
1: I mean, Peter, if I may come in, mean, again, at a fundamental uh, level, I mean, this is not a question of, I mean, what is right and what is just. It's a question of what is uh, practical and what is productive. And I think, again, part of the crisis that we see right now, look, I mean, Abbas and the Fatah and the PLO have went to the Palestinian public and say, look, we're going to do things that you might not like security coordination, uh, et cetera, things of the, the sort. But we're gonna do them because ultimately they will produce results. And for a while they did. And the fundamental crisis today is that it's very difficult right now with annexation on the horizon for Abbas or the PLO or anyone actually on the Palestinian side who believes in diplomacy to come out and say, look, accept us doing these things that you don't like, uh, because ultimately it produces results. Because the counter argument is you've done all of these things and what's happening? Annexation, expansion, settlements, etc." So, So in a sense, I mean, it's not really a moral argument. It's a result driven argument. And the results, unfortunately, uh, so far have not been very encouraging.
0: Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think it is legitimate to ask the question of whether those three quartet conditions, uh, especially respecting past agreements and, and supporting the idea of two states, are conditions that the Israeli government could meet, mm. um, and not just Hamas. But um, uh, but I wanted to pick up on uh, Raith on where you left Is the is the is the, what the PA has been doing, um, since it began security cooperation is kind of the exact inverse of what the African National Congress did in South Africa in the 1980s, which say they they the conscious strategy in the 1980s was to make the, the township the black townships ungovernable to raise the cost of control for the South African government, even though the most of the cost was borne by Black South Africans. It was, a, you know, talked about a whole generation that virtually didn't go to school, and yet it was effective in forcing a crisis um, uh, in, in the White South African government because the cost of it literally having to go in there every day and try to put down these rebellions forced a new kind of conversation uh, in the South African regime. And I just I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you, Gary, since Raith has kind of said that that the that the security cooperation hasn't produced the political outcome. What do you think the political outcome would be um, were the Palestinians to go the other route um, uh, and end security cooperation and, and essentially not provide the kind of law and order um, uh, and anti-terrorism you know, uh, cooperation that they've been for the last few years?
2: So I think this brings us back, back to the-
0: Politics, sorry, go ahead.
2: Right, so I think this brings us back to to the beginning of the conversation and, and the current moment really, uh, and the d- decision uh, that Abbas and the Palestinian leadership currently face um, you know given that annexation might be coming down the pike, uh, how do you respond and There are various uh, international and diplomatic measures uh, that they've uh, begun taking uh, trying to garner international support to to pressure Israel to not go through with annexation. Uh, they took the step a few days ago of uh, of refusing uh, all the tax transfers that are given to them uh, via Israel for goods that are imported into the Palestinian territories, I think that was a that was a major economic step that could have uh, severe financial uh, repercussions. And I think, uh, arguably, the most important one was this uh, severing or suspension of security coordination. Now, why is it the potentially the most uh, far-reaching one? Uh, because it may it may uh, in a few weeks, or or if annexation uh, is really is really uh, happening, um, create a situation like you like you described. Uh, in other words, um, that all the all the things that the PA security forces do, um, or many of the things, uh, like for instance, riot control, stopping uh, whether by commission or omission, Palestinians from reaching these friction points in the West Bank uh, between Palestinian and Israeli control. Um, you know, really, really, uh, acting as a, as a buffer and not letting things spiral, spiral out of control. I think that, uh, that may be a more realistic scenario than many people here would like to, would like to countenance. Um, I don't envision and the Palestinian officials that I've spoken to have said so, uh, clearly they're not going to stop, uh, counterterrorism. You know, they're not going to do what Arafat did in the 1990s and second Intifada, this kind of double game of, of, uh, of kind of you know upholding a certain level of coordination, but through the back door allowing Hamas or Islamic Jihad to to launch attacks, um, to say nothing of of uh, Fatah militants launching attacks, I don't see that happening, and then the Palestinians in Ramallah have said so themselves. Uh, but short of that, and with the eye of raising the price uh, for Israel, with the with moving forward on annexation. I could see a situation precisely as you described, which is that mass demonstrations are, are formed and allowed to happen. And that, you know, not only does it bring international attention, but it very much uh, is a preoccupation for the IDF in trying to uh, contain it.
1: Mm-hmm. And again, I mean, there is, I think, I mean, the question that you asked, Peter, is a question that, uh, I mean, it's one of the key questions that the Palestinians in general are actually asking themselves. What would work? because i mean you know we're focusing on one thing that did not work and that's security coordination and diplomacy and it absolutely has not worked but neither has anything else worked in recent times for the palestinians i mean uh, they tried the uh, intifada um, that was very damaging, not only to the Palestinians, kind on an individual and socioeconomic level, but also on a national level. And I think this is uh, very strongly felt by the majority of Palestinians. Tried violence, uh, you know, Gaza style, uh, that came with the, with uh, bad consequences. For really, for Palestinians today, and this is part of the problem, is that they cannot even identify a path forward towards uh, progress. What this creates is, is volatility, and this creates... The space for what we've seen a lot of recently, which is kind of individual uh, revenge motivated uh, kind of violence, which is very difficult to control for any security uh, establishment. So at the fundamental level, this is where the Palestinians find themselves. They know they don't like where they are right now, but they are at a loss of what are the tools? Because frankly, in the recent memory, they've tried all the different tools. None of them have produced anything for them. Right.
0: But Neri, I want to just to go, you were sketching out, it sounded to me potentially like a scenario in which anti-terrorism cooperation is maintained, but the, the PA um, opens the door for, um, all, for, for protests which, is, which, which don't, doesn't qualify for terrorism, you know, whether, I mean, not to say necessarily that would be completely nonviolent, but some forms of mass protest, maybe looking more like the first Intifada than the second Intifada, I don't know. But um, I, if we play out that scenario, you know, to pick up on where Rafe left off, which is to say, what might work? What do you think the impact on Israeli politics would be of something like that?
2: I mean, I think, I think the impact could be profound if it was, if it was done correctly and calibrated correctly. Um, you know, As Raith uh, said very, uh, very correctly, uh, Abbas doesn't have many good tools. Uh, doesn't have any good tools in order to push back uh, against Israel and, and the annexation idea. So he's, he's sitting there and he's trying to garner international support. He's trying to uh, kind of send a message to Israel, uh, you know, please, you know, please don't do this. And so what what may work, what may send the strongest signal, um, it's an open question. In the past, like you said, uh, the Second Intifada, I, I don't see Abbas and, and the current Palestinian leadership, uh, thankfully, going down that path. Um, it proved uh, disastrous. Uh, For them and also uh, for many Israelis as well. Uh, But like you said, Peter, uh, the first intifada might might provide a a more a more realistic and effective model uh, contingent on them being able uh, to keep it nonviolent. Uh, And that's a big question. And I think it's a question uh, that's going through the minds of, of certain officials in in Ramallah, um, you know, they're not quite there yet. I'm, I think they're, they're hoping that it doesn't have to come to that. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a question of whether Abbas will, will actually go down that path because he's been in power for 15 years and he hasn't, he hasn't done it yet. He hasn't, uh, quote unquote, uh, pulled the trigger on that, on that strategy uh, because uh, he knows that, you know, you, you start these things, but you don't quite know how, uh, how to end.
1: Okay. And look, I mean, in the
2: past when there were attempts to do
1: some of these kind of peaceful uh, um, demonstrations, um, they have not worked. And they have not worked because, uh, you know, different parties with vested interest, be it Hamas, but also Fatah itself, are very reluctant to cede kind of the ground to uh, organizing uh, grassroots organization. And so often what we've seen, things starting out uh, peaceful, things starting out grassroots, and then Uh, Fatah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad to a lesser extent, would come and try to hijack that. The only way they know how to do it is uh, using violence. So ironically, to produce what you laid out, uh, Peter, you need two things. You need a strong security uh, sector to impose discipline. Without that, the peaceful demonstrations would quickly devolve. But what you need is also a degree of political legitimacy for the leadership to basically um, you know, mobilize their public. And today, and this is part of my own concern as I look at the Palestinian arena, I don't see the leaders that have this kind of political legitimacy, be it in Fatah, but also in Hamas. I just don't see who has the kind of moral authority to not only take, bring people to the street, but to also uh, impose a degree of discipline that is needed to produce an unviolent uh, uh, strategy. Um,
0: I, one or two more questions, but Raith, I wanted to just ask you a little bit about how security cooperation you think may fare post Abbas. If you, you know, look at the potential range of contenders which will power after him, how likely do you think, uh, I mean, do you think those people have the same interest in security cooperation or do you think that with Abbas, uh, an entire strategy and perspective may,
1: may pass? I actually think, if you look at the uh... The uh, potential successors within, uh, if you wish, the tent, um, within Fatah, within the PA establishment, I think they will all be committed to security coordination. Uh, maybe in the beginning they will take hardline positions. I think each and every one of them uh, knows um, that if there is no security cooperation, the viability of the Palestinian Authority is in question. I don't see any of the kind of available uh, successors as someone who would uh, end this and by extension. Uh, uh, lead to the fall of the PA. My concern is not that. My concern is that because of the kind of vagueness uh, and lack of clarity surrounding succession, because of the volatility of the overall political context, including as it relates to relations with Israel and annexation, et cetera, my fear is that the succession process will not produce some of these establishment figures who we can predict and who we know how they're gonna operate, but will, predict a much, will produce a much weaker, much more decentralized, if not to say disintegrated, a uh, Palestinian body politic. And then I'm worried that competing Palestinian interests might resort to violence. But if we end up with uh, an orderly succession, I'm, I'm very, I'll be very surprised if uh, the next leader will uh, end security cooperation. Mary,
0: I, oh. wanted to ask, I just wanted to ask you, but it's not the subject of the report you did, but
1: I've noticed that people
0: have started talking to some degree about security cooperation of a certain kind, a different kind, uh, between Israel and Hamas. Um, and I wonder if you could just say something about the, the, the nature of the interaction on the security side between Israel and, and, and Hamas. Um, uh, you know, can it be de- de- described at this point in any kind of way as coordination uh, or is, is that an exaggeration or what, how do the two sides communicate with one another and, ha- and, 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 and kind of and, and find a, uh, a kind of detente as they appear
2: to do sometimes? So I wouldn't call it uh, coordination. Uh, I think that's that's too large of a word for it. But it does hold a kernel of truth. Uh, this this scenario, this this relationship that you describe, um, there is a certain level of of commonality of interests and at least roundabout coordination via Egypt uh, and the UN mediators here, um, exchanging messages between Israel and and Hamas in Gaza. Uh, and this is this has been going on now for a few years. Um, and from the Israeli point of view, uh, they like the fact that you have uh, one authority or, or one address, as they say here, uh, in Gaza that, that nominally controls uh, the territory and the politics. And that um, you know, if there is violence or, or unrest emanating from Gaza, that you have uh, this one point of call that you can, that you can at least deal with or uh, pressure um, when the time comes. And so, uh, you know, with a wink and a nod, there is a, there is a security relationship between uh, Hamas and Israel. Um, you know, the, the clearest example is that Hamas has these these border fo- force patrols um, on the periphery of Gaza that actually uh, has worked uh, quite effectively or not effectively, depending on the whims of, of the Gazan uh, leadership, uh, to stop uh, other armed factions from from reaching the, the Gaza-Israel border fence and, and trying... Uh, any kind of uh, attacks. Uh, that's you know, the clearest example, but there are others. Um, now, I think the, the larger point though, um, and again, it speaks to, to what's happening politically right now, is that the, the irony, or, or really the better word is the tragedy, is that Hamas has used violence against Israel um, very recently, whether rockets or other types of attacks. Uh, and you find Israel actually negotiating with, uh, with Hamas in Gaza. Um, you know, to to provide certain uh, humanitarian and economic relief packages. Uh, and on the flip side, in the West Bank, you have a Palestinian leadership that has that actually played ball with Israel, um, that is committed to nonviolence, that is, uh, on a very fundamental and personal level, uh, coordinating with Israel until, until very recently uh, to stop terror, to stop violence, and yet Israel is actually, um, you know, moving moving against the political interests of, of the Palestinian leadership in Ramallah, uh, I think that's a very bad, uh, I think it's a very counterproductive strategy, but it's a very bad message to send to the Palestinians um, because really, uh, do, you know, based on the Hamas president, you could argue that, that only violence pays.
1: Which by the way, exactly the messaging that Hamas uh, used after the Gaza disengagement. I mean, when you give political dividend uh, towards violence, don't be surprised that uh, that becomes more legitimized.
0: Right. With um, I wanted to end by asking one, one question, if you don't mind, which is not entirely about security cooperation. I, I, um, one of the things that I, I, I noticed as an observer of Palestinian discourse, particularly in the diaspora in, in English, is that um, I don't find very many Palestinian intellectuals and activists anymore who at least come across my, whose work I come across who support the two-state solution, um, or certainly support security coordination? Um, um, the 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 climate seems to be much much more, you know, in, in support of of the of the idea of one equal state. Um, and um, uh, you uh, are still a supporter uh, of the two-state. You are, remain a supporter of the two-state solution. Um, and so I wonder if you could just talk, a, talk. If my perception of the center of gravity is wrong, please tell me. Um, or if you think I'm getting a distorted mm-hmm. image of Palestinian discourse. But um, I'm interested in, in um, what, what sustains you and roots you in this paradigm that it seems <coughs> that so many other Palestinian intellectuals and activists have right. moved away from if they ever supported it. To begin
1: with. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I mean, what you're describing is actually two different uh, things kind of uh, coalescing together. I mean, one is uh, certainly, look, I mean, there's always been a degree of disconnect. Between the diaspora and people on the ground and between the intellectuals and people on the ground and it was interesting, for example, when you look at Oslo itself. That was uh, dismissed by many of the political kind of classes, but were very heavily supported by many people uh, on the ground. And indeed, if you look today at the perception of a two-state solution, while it's quickly receding by, uh, among Palestinians on the ground, there's still much higher degree of support for it than diaspora and the intellectuals. And there are many reasons for this. And I'm, you know, I'm not faulting anyone, but this is uh, this is uh, part of of uh, of a dynamic that has been ongoing for a long time. Uh, that's kind of one uh, one part uh, of the. Dynamic, but the other part which worries me more is the part that, yes, on the ground, people are starting to lose uh, faith in a two state solution. Now, you know, if you look at polls, you will find, you know, if you try to figure out why people are losing uh, faith, still I would say a majority, uh, depending on what polls you look at, or at least plurality, believes that a two state solution is uh, uh, is a desirable option, outcome. The problem is the majority of Palestinians do not see it as achievable. And again, here we go back to kind of where uh, we, it all started, which is diplomacy has not worked, violence and terrorism uh, has not worked. Uh, so where do we go from here? Lack of uh, legitimate leadership. And I think this is kind of the, uh, the fundamental issue. What keeps me um, uh, committed is, uh, is, the, uh, is the following. I just do not see any other option. In a sense when, I mean, the older you get, the more that you see history repeating itself. And many, much of what I hear today is what I heard in the 70s and 80s uh, when I talked my activism. And it will fail for the same reason. And the reason is you have two national movements whose only fulfillment will be through the creation of their own nation states, uh, through self-determination. Zionism is a very legitimate uh, aspiration of Jews Jewish to have their own state. And the Palestinians have a legitimate aspiration to have their own state. And neither nation will give up on their national aspirations. So to avoid perpetual conflict, the only path forward is a two-state solution. Uh, you know, the not-so-simple question, of course, how do you get that? Because if we don't get that, we'll end up with either the, Conflict as we have it, or the conflict being transformed, transformed into another kind of uh, conflict, but equally intractable. Um,
0: well, on that um, uh, dispiriting, but um, but but a deeply honest, a um, uh, note. Um, I wanted to thank both of you very much, uh, Neri and Ray. Thank you for spending some time with us, and I hope we'll have the opportunity to do it again.
1: Thanks, Thanks Peter. Sir.
0: Take care.